Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-824-5131. 800-824-5131. That's 800-824-5131. The views and opinions expressed in the following program are those of the program's participants and do not necessarily reflect those of station staff, management, and advertisers. They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A raconteur is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Raconteurs. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The sports raconteurs dust off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rock and Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. It's February, and that means Black History Month. And when it comes to sports, one of the biggest names is Jackie Robinson whose courage opened up the sport of baseball to all Americans. Today, we honor Robinson and the other person responsible for this historic effort, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, with a two-show special discussing the facts and myths of their relationship. Well, sometimes in the world of sports, it can transcend, an event can transcend that and become really an important part of American history and cultural history. And certainly the case of Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in conjunction with general manager Branch Rickey, fascinating story. And we've got some of the best people to talk about it. Two great writers with us. Jonathan Eag has written a fantastic book, Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season. And Lee Lowenfish, Branch Rickey baseball's ferocious gentleman. Also with us, our good friend Upton Bell, whose dad, Burt Bell, was uh, involved, knew both of these people, and he's going to give us a little insight from that end. But I want to start first with, with you, Jonathan. You write about Jackie Robinson. It was a fascinating book and kind of looking at that first season. What kind of motivated you to write that? And did you learn anything that was unexpected? Because that was a subject that had been pretty involved, you know, from the, from the beginning. Yeah, my big thing was that... Um Jackie Robinson has kind of been turned into a mythological figure in this country, and people lose sight of a lot of the nuances. And 
you know, it, it started for me because I was talking to Rachel Robinson about this famous moment that where Pee Wee Reese supposedly put his arm around Jackie Robinson in 1947 and hushed this crowd of, you know, racist hecklers. And when Mrs. Robinson told me that never happened and that the team was really, um, you know, didn't warm up to Jack until, you know, well into the season, I realized that, like, there were so many mistakes in our comprehension of this story and that we needed to just take a step back and, and look at what really happened and just um, tell the story again. You know, these are stories we, we need to tell over and over again um, and hopefully, you know, get closer to getting them right as we go along. Yeah, do you think people kind of write their own history with that where they want to think of Pee Wee Reese like that? And Pee Wee Reese, you know, eventually did warm up, like you said, to, to Jackie. But people want to make that story kind of like almost like a tall tale the way we used to do about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. And it's really easy to see how these things happen. You know, in 48, 49, Kiwi Reese and Jackie Robinson are standing together in the infield um, every time there's a pitching change and they're putting their arms on each other's shoulders. And somebody decided, oh, that would be a great moment to show how much they bonded in 1947. So instead of writing about it, honestly, they just make a little change and they, they, they move it to 47 and suddenly it becomes this iconic tale and it's a subject of children's books and poems and movies and statues and um it just you know the that's how mythology is is created you know one little exaggeration at a time now lee what about branch ricky uh i mean now everybody thinks of him as this great person i don't think a lot of people unless they've read your book really know what it was because he didn't have a personality like jackie right i mean he was a completely different guy Yes, uh, yes, and no. I mean, because they both were very religious, and uh, you, they couldn't have gotten through the situation they got through uh, from '45 when he was signed through uh, that uh, the year that Red Barber called the year that all hell broke loose, 1947. They couldn't have gotten through that if they hadn't been religious. And uh, so when I got into the study of, of Ricky. I, I, at first, you know, my earlier work was, uh, my first book was on a, a history of labor and baseball, and Branch Rickey was the, almost the foil in that book because he he loved the reserve system, and and he called people who opposed the reserve system communists at the height of the Cold War. And uh, so yeah, I, I, I realized there was that side of him that was very reactionary. But the more I got into him in the 1990s and the first part of the century, the more I realized that he was much more of a warm person than that. You know, well, one of the first times I spoke to Rachel Robinson, she said that he was paternal without being paternalistic. And so you can't understand that the story of how Ricky and Robinson got together without understanding that genuinely paternal relationship. And so when Jack, when Jackie got into the Hall of Fame in 1962, one of the first things she said at Cooperstown was it wouldn't be complete without the presence of Rachel, his mother, and Branch Ricky, who were all there in Cooperstown on that day. Was it one of those things, too, where... They knew what they were getting into. Obviously, Jackie Robinson, just from what he grew up with and so forth, had to realize that there's going to be people that are going to be out to, to, to do whatever they can to screw it up. In terms of Branch Rickey, did he kind of realize, I, I, mean, I assume he knew it was a gutsy move, but was he realize, did he realize exactly what it was going to take? And 
Also, there's been a lot written about the fact that Jackie Robinson was the kind of person that he was looking for. Uh, how much of that is myth and how much of that is real? Well, uh, let's start, uh, Jonathan, was that a real thing that really he was the, the guy that they were all looking for? And then uh, I want to get from you, Lee, afterwards, kind of what branch did he know he wanted to do it? Or was it just Jackie Robinson was the right guy at the right time? Um, I'd love to hear Lee's take on this because we might disagree. Let's see what happens. Um, I, I think one of the greatest strokes of, of genius for Branch Rickey was his decision not to choose the best available ball player and to take a chance on, on somebody who was um, you know, less experienced but, uh, but stronger in character, um, but also somebody um, who would, would be visible and was a star and knew how to handle the pressure of celebrity because – Robinson had been a, a you know an outstanding athlete for so long and had been a, a success um, as a college football and basketball player and had already gained fame and but you know I have to admit if it were me making this choice I might have I might have compromised a little bit I might have chosen a pitcher who only appears on the field every you know fourth or fifth day I might have chosen a catcher who's uh, hidden behind the mask you know Roy Campanella was such a great ball player such a great personality everybody loved him. But Branch Rickey chose the um, the bolder choice here with Robinson, and I think that is partly why um, this story has so much power, and why we're still um, in awe of the, the 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 outcome of this historical moment. Well, well, Jonathan, I, I basically agree with you on that, uh, and and what makes this period so fascinating to me is that. You know, the 1945 was was one one thing. You know, the the war was over. It was no accident that 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 Ricky interviews Jackie Robinson at the famous meeting at the Dodger offices in Brooklyn, 215 Montague Street, two weeks after World War II has ended, and and he had been researching this uh, for and, and scouting all through the war, and he couldn't wait to get this started. But he also knew that this was going to be uh, a big event, as Jonathan says. And you're going to need somebody who can deal with the pressures. More with Jonathan Eig, author of Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season. Lee Lowenfish, author of Branch Rickey, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman. And longtime sports executive and journalist Upton Bell in just a moment. All of our interviews with some of the greats from the world of sports can be found on Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Manji, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Did Louis the Coin really soak the sheets with red wine in Rome? Yes. Did he really tell a federal court after testing positive for cocaine in his 70s that he only used coke for sex? Yes. Well, you can get these tales and more in the great book, You Thought It Was More, Adventures of the World's Greatest Counterfeiters. It's available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at LouisTheCoinBook.com. That's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at LouisTheCoinBook.com. Celebrity voice impersonated. This is Dr. Phil talking at you. You know all those messed up kids you see on my TV show? Well, they're not book readers. Your kids need something fun to read. That's why I recommend American Stonehenge. It's a modern adventure story filled 
with great characters and mysterious plot twists. For a free preview of the first four chapters, go to jimmyandandrew.com. That's jimmyandandrew.com. Use promo code RICH25 and receive a 25% discount. Go to jimmyandandrew.com and use promo code RICH25. Get your kids reading. That way, they stay off my TV show. What were you thinking? You hear Mr. Big every week on this show. Now Mr. Big invites you to visit him online and save some money. All his books are now on Kindle, and he's got a variety of books, fiction and nonfiction, including The Life and Times of Frank Balisteri, books on casino games, and much more. You can buy the Kindle and save even more money. Go to MilwaukeeMob.com. That's MilwaukeeMob.com. That's MilwaukeeMob.com. He flew fighter jets in two wars and taught you how to drive a car. He fed everyone on the block, but never shared his secret recipes. And every time he'd tell a story, he'd own the room. But now more than ever, he may feel alone. Today, older adults and their loved ones are struggling to connect in a time when connection has never been more important. But there is something we can do. Embrace our older loved ones through StoryCorps Connect. With StoryCorps Connect, you can honor seniors remotely with an interview about their life. Every interview will be archived at the Library of Congress, becoming part of American history, so that years from now, future generations can listen in. All right, Grandpa, what's one piece of advice you have for me? Just three words, sweetheart. Live with courage. The man that had the best stories still has plenty of stories to tell. So connect virtually and share the conversation of a lifetime at storycorpsconnect.org slash AARP. Connect, honor, share. StoryCorps Connect. A message from AARP, StoryCorps, and the Ad Council. Do you need to sell your home? If you've sold a home before, you remember how stressful and expensive it was. Sold.com is here to help you sell your home for the most money and with the least amount of stress. There are new ways to sell your home that you've never heard of before. Did you know there are companies who will offer you cash for your home? Did you know you could trade in your home for a new one? Did you know there are realtors who will sell your home for a flat fee instead of an expensive commission? It's true. Sold.com services are free. So if you're looking to sell, make this free phone call right now and learn how your next home sale can be faster and easier than you ever thought possible. Pick up your cell phone and call right now. 800-948-6826-800-948-6826-800-948-6826. Again, that's 800-948-6826. Let's return to Sports Rockin' Tours. On Talk Media Network, here is Stephen Maggi. We are back with authors Jonathan Eig and Lee Lowenfish and longtime sports executive and journalist Upton Bell. And, and the fascination of Robinson and both these men, really, is that they were so, they were complimented, complimented, in a good sense, because they were they were type A personalities. They weren't bullshitters. But Jackie had this amazing ability 
beginning from his first press conference in Montreal when he was introduced in October 23rd, 1945, to say, I'm glad for the opportunity and uh, soft-spoken and, you know, I don't, um, I'm, uh, I, I welcome pressure, but very, uh, and so he was always good at that, you know, through uh, that first season. So, uh, and, and Ricky, of course, was uh, afraid of the reaction. I mean, his son, who worked closely with him, Branch Ricky Jr., made the comment, well, if the Southern boys don't like having Robinson, well, they can go back and pick Cotton. And, and he got, uh, he, he got uh, criticism for that, as did the father. But the father didn't back down. And, and, and you see, this is why the story uh, needs to be retold and with nuances without forgetting how courageous both these men were at a time, maybe the last hopeful time in our history, the end of World War II, when all the killing had been done and over a million African Americans had been in the service, and they're, cause they're supposed to come back and, and then be at the back of the bus again. And, you know, and, you know Ricky was quite aware that of the... Uh, of the uh, the court martial for of Jackie the year before, because he wouldn't go to the back of the bus. So, but the thing that fascinates me about Ricky is he didn't want to control, you know. He uh, and so and for the first couple of years, uh, when Robinson was in the big leagues, he kept uh, he kept his comments to um, to a minimum, but. Uh, you know, once the '49 season arose, then it was pretty much open season, and and so I, uh, there's really no disagreement about that. One one of the things that that, that I do want to add to these two gentlemen, which I find really fascinating, is is the quirks of history. In 1941, most people don't know Jackie Robinson played in the All Star Game uh, against the Chicago Bears. I've watched films, and I knew a lot about him even as a kid because he and Kenny Washington, who was the person who broke the color line in the NFL one year before that with the Rams, they were in one of the greatest backfields in the college history. And basically, many of the pros thought that Jackie Robinson was a better uh, pro football prospect than a baseball prospect. And uh, who knows where the ironies of life if the NFL had had uh, much earlier uh, broken the color line, and nobody knows why for 12 years that they ever did, because they originally did have African-American players. Uh, but in that case, if the NFL was uh, if totally integrated, I, I believe that Jackie Robinson might have chosen pro football over baseball. I well, agree. You know, he probably would have chosen basketball over, over baseball, too. He was, baseball was not his, his favorite at all. Of course, that was one of the big advantages in, in Branch Rickey's eyes about Jackie Robinson because he had played integrated football at UCLA yep. and had had been successful, and he knew how to uh, deal with white crowds, and, and he knew how to—I remember I interviewed a, a late— black sports writer named St. Clair Bourne, whose son with the same name is a filmmaker now. And Bourne told me the story of when Robinson was playing at UCLA uh, in the backfield with Kenny Washington and Woody Stroh strode when the quarterback was was knocked down. The uh, one of the opponents went up to him and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. 
so, you know, there was always those little digs, but he knew how to take care of himself. So uh, the, the, the thing about Robinson being the greatest all-American athlete, uh, greatest all-around athlete since Jim Thorpe is, I think, quite quite accurate. The question on Jackie, you kind of had to have a balancing act because you you didn't want him, you know, you were mentioning before that you could go in there. They wanted him to have a little independence, but just not go too far. So, boy, there was a lot asked for him because he was supposed to do some, but not, but, but not too much. And he also was pretty uh, assertive on the base paths and so forth, which annoyed some idiots. But, it, you know, the fact is you kind of had to do it because if you want to make this work, it has to be that right mix. One of the things that I felt, because I, as a kid, went with my father for the breaking of, of the color line in, in California when the Rams were told either you uh, draft or sign a black player or we're not going to let you into the Coliseum. And that's when uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, who later, of course, became the great actor, uh, came over. And it was really kind of past uh, their careers because they had been out of football, uh, out of the NFL for so long. But I wonder uh, if both of you would speak to the idea that because Jackie uh, grew up and played in, in a completely different place, it wasn't the South, it wasn't the North, it was in many ways more wide open than it would be here. If, if he didn't go to UCLA, if he wasn't from the West Coast, would he have ever gotten the chance that he got out there? I think that's a great question. And it's, it's always, uh, you know, difficult to say what if, but, um, you know, huge credit goes to his mother for escaping a, a terrible domestic situation, taking him away from, uh, from, from, a, from a broken family in Georgia and moving him out West, um, and, and, you know, raising this family as a single mom and, and giving his kid, giving her kid the chance to uh, go to integrated schools. I mean, that changed the course of history. But uh, we can never know what would have happened to uh, Robinson if he'd stayed in Georgia as a child. And, and I'm glad I was able to give props in my book to Carl Downs, the, his pastor who in L.A. who saw Robinson as a great not only a great athlete, but a you know a, a proud man, spokesman for the race, but who could whose tact, whose temper could get him you know in, into trouble as it did growing up, and it was it was Downs who got him in uh, into the church and also had him coach uh, when Downs went to uh, uh, to be a pastor in Austin, Texas at the at, at I think it was called Houston College. And, and he wound up marrying Rachel and uh, and Jackie and came to celebrate some of the 1947 season, including the World Series with them. And then he, he fell ill, and instead of going to a hospital here, he went back to segregated Austin, and he died at the age of 35 in 1948. And so, again, though, that, that, that religious part of 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 Robinson that he and Ricky had, I, 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 you know, should not be forgotten. More with Jonathan Igg, author of Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season, Lee Wellenfish, author of Branch Ricky, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman, and longtime sports executive and journalist Upton Bell in just a moment. Make sure to search for Sports R-A-C-X wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Maggi, nationwide on the Talk Media Network.
And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. It's hard to understand the impact that someone had on your life until they're not in it anymore. But as we learn in Dear Zachary, a letter to his son about his father, that impact often becomes far more powerful than we ever could have imagined. After Andrew Bagby was found murdered in suburban Pennsylvania, presumably by his lover Shirley Turner, his friend, director Kurt Kenny, set out to document his life. He hoped to show the footage one day to Bagby's son, Zachary, born to Turner shortly after his father's death. Kenny interviewed family members, close friends, co-workers, and anyone else who ever knew Andrew. In the struggle to film a comprehensive picture of his friend's life, Kenny also gets caught up in the investigation of his death. He is drawn into Turner's flight with the baby to Canada and the complex legal proceedings that Bagby's parents initiated to gain custody of their grandson from his potentially dangerous mother. In the award-winning final product, Dear Zachary is an impressively constructed and thoroughly satisfying true crime documentary. But beware, your heart will be knocked from its very foundation before its end. Keep tissues handy. Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Know someone with a drinking or drug problem? Learn how to get sober after we share these stories. I was 35 with two beautiful children when my life and addiction started to spiral out of control. After my divorce, I went into a depression cycle and started drinking more often and using prescription drugs. After my second DWI and arrest, my ex-husband threatened to take our children away from me. I was 17 when I became addicted to heroin and meth. I thought I could quit on my own, but I couldn't. It hit me when I was arrested. Get sober now. Your private insurance may cover costs and we'll get you here. It's simple. Just call Elite Rehab Placement right now. Please, don't wait. Your life matters to us. 800-213-9264 Call right now before it's too late. 800-213-9264 When you go to Las Vegas, you have to know what you're going to go see and there's no better place on the web to go than VitalVegas.com You hear Scott Robin, our Vegas insider, every week. What are people going to find when they go to your site, Scott? Everything you need to know about Las Vegas from shows and restaurants and a lot of inside dirt that you won't hear anywhere else. And a lot of photos, too, and a lot of snark, right? That is the case. <laughs> yes. You can't miss it. VitalVegas.com. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. If you've had a revision or removal surgery of a hernia mesh implant after 2008, pay close attention to this message. Hernia mesh manufacturers have recalled some of the mesh material that may have been used in your surgery due to high failure rate. The FDA has even blamed the recalled mesh material for some of the worst of the health issues reported by doctors and patients. If you've had two or more hernia surgeries for the same issue and you're having severe complications, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So please call now. 800-430-4505 That's 800-430-4505 
Sports Tours continues. Here again, Stephen Maggi. You are listening to authors Jonathan Igg and Lee Lowenfish and Upton Bell. Well, Lee, in terms of uh, that time, let's talk before this happened. Ricky had to realize that he was going to have a target on him, right? I mean, I, I would assume all the other teams in the league didn't want to go there, and it really was gutsy in that respect. Or was it something that people were happy about it because they knew it was going to open this huge market of great athletes, but just didn't want to be the one to start it? Well, that's you know, you know, Ricky was glad when Stoneham started signing Hank Thompson, Irvin, and Mays. And he was glad that, 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 that the Braves, you know, those were the three uh, teams all in the National League that, that got in to, into the market. Uh, but, but he knew that uh, there was going to be uh, uh, trouble from the other owners. And I, I don't want to get too into inside history stuff here, but, you know, Ricky... To historians has 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 given some problems because he gave that speech to the black school in Wilberforce in '48, saying they voted against Robinson, and that what they were actually doing was voting to table a, uh, the reforms that included a pension program and and some uh, modification of the reserve system in '46 and '47. And he wanted no part of the res- that kind of thing. So in some way. You know, Ricky has uh, has confused historians of all, from all different sides. But when it comes down to him, and one of the reasons I wrote a 600-page book about him was that, as one of the writers said, that he was one of the slyest men who ever lived, but in all fundamentals, a man of honor. And so that's what attracted Robinson to him. And, you know, that's what the players who, uh, uh, like, like Erskine, uh, to, uh, to, uh, talks and he's still alive at 94. Carl Erskine uh, talks about how, how much you know Ricky meant to their lives. In fact, you know one last thing. I heard Erskine on a Zoom the other day, and uh, and, and talking about Gil Hodges being part of the Hall of Fame, which he supports. And he said, what hasn't been noticed, the girl Gil Hodges played first base next to Jackie Robinson at second, starting in 1948. And Hodges, in his quiet, strong way, had a lot to do from keeping the, the dirty slides at second base into Jackie uh, under control. I'd never heard that point before. Uh, so uh, it's just another example of why it's great to, to relive this period, because it, it was so epic-making in our history. Uh, and, and if it happened once, you know, doing the right thing, uh, at the right time, I, I hope it can happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Do you guys think that Brooklyn, New York City, is the place that it really had to happen because it was not only an, an, a more open city than a lot of towns in the league at the time, but also it's where the media was? Oh, I think it helped that it was New York City, and, and, and certainly Brooklyn is, is even more of a melting pot than other urban areas. But, um, you know, I think if Branch Rickey had been the GM in uh, – St. Louis, he would have made it work. He would have made it work there, and I think it was, um, it was, you know, just New York was was certainly the, the best place for it. But uh, I'm not sure it was the only place that it could have worked. 
Oh, I know. Here's one disagreement, well, and, and, and you know, it had to be New York because of the media. And St. Louis, the stands were still segregated oh, until point, yeah. 1944. And you read the newspapers in St. Louis, you know, they're, they're, they're just, you know, really outright racist stuff about, uh, you know, somebody ran down the field like a darky. Uh, at sunrise or at sunset. I mean, it was real. So it really had to be uh, in, in New York, and and it really appealed to Ricky to to Ricky's sense of the the underdog. You know what made him fascinated is that he was fascinating. He's a country boy, and he never was comfortable in New York, but he knew how to 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 put. Uh, the the underdog uh, sense of the Dodger fans in, into high relief, and his first speeches, you know, to Rotary clubs were about you know, pull on the Giants and pull on the Yankees. You know, we are we you know we're we're the we're the workers here. So, so I, I do think it had to be there, and and uh, I don't see how it could have been anywhere else at that time in our history. One question I have about it, uh, because my father knew. The participants in New York. I, I, I really would like to throw out to both of you. Um, my belief is at the time, and I, I saw the Dodgers play many times. I saw Robinson uh, when he first came up in Philly because at Chai Park, both the Athletics and the Phillies played. And my father was great friends with Connie Mack and, and all the people there. So we went to all the baseball games. But, but the question I have is uh, Dan Topping Yankees. I, I don't think they would have signed Robinson, I, and I wonder what what you believe, what you guys think uh, about this, Jonathan, because at the, the Yankees, my father dealt with Topping when he owned the Brooklyn Dodgers, actually, which was a football team in the old NFL, and uh, he would be the last guy that I would figure or the Yankees to sign Robinson. But I want to get your your guys' opinion. I, Absolutely I, true. Yeah, yeah I, I, agree. Mean, the, I agree too. You know, they they made statements that the uh, the our fans from Westchester don't want to watch black ball players and don't want to sit next to black fans. And and Robinson, uh, when he became you know, the, the the national figure, he was you know the most popular entertainer after, next to Bing Crosby by 1947. Uh, Robinson was on youth wants to know, uh, hosted by Eleanor Roosevelt, and was asked the question, are the Yankees prejudiced? And he said, well, I need some evidence to uh, <laughs> to, to show anything different. Yeah. And, you know, to, to give a tip of the cap to 42, the movie, I mean, I, uh, uh, I'm so glad they, they cast uh, Chris Morloney as DeRosha, because, you know, DeRosha had been... Uh, had been uh, so, uh, I mean, he was the, the greatest line on DeRosha is that he was a Horatio Alger story as told by Mickey Spillane. <laughs> and, but, but, but he, he, but he was so uh, uh, colorblind. I mean, he, he, he came from the other side of the tracks in uh, West Princefield, Massachusetts. It's, he was French Canadian. He actually, they spoke French at home, not, uh, not English. And he was the kind of guy that Ricky loved because he, he, he felt he could tame him. And he wanted DeRosha to manage Jackie because, 
know, he, well, he, he respected and knew that Bert Schotten, Bert Schotten was not a wave maker. And if Ben Chapman had pulled his stuff uh, with the black cats and the, all the racist uh, 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 invective, you know, DeRocher would have thrown at the, the, every Philly batter two or three times or would have ordered that. So when he was suspended, that added to the whole uh, turmoil of 1947. So, uh, yes, and so that's why this period never ceases to uh, fascinate. And we, the, the more we dig, the more uh, we learn. And if we disagree, well, you know, that's fine. You know, that well, what we need is, you know, you know, disagreement without being disagreeable. And in this case, there's not much disagreement. I completely agree. And if you want proof as to uh, the Yankees' intentions or any other team, all you have to do is look at how long it took them to sign their first black player. Yeah, and they got rid of Vic Power because he was too colorful off the field. And uh, they they got Elston Howard, and Casey Stengel supposedly said that, you know, we finally got one and he can't run. But, you know, they, they continue to win. And I think one of the greatest uh, disappointments in, in Ricky's career was that he never could beat the Yankees uh, as a, uh, as when he was in Brooklyn. And, you know, people forget he was only in Brooklyn for eight years. More with Jonathan Eig, author of Opening Day, the story of Jackie Robinson's first season. Lee Lowenfish, author of Branch Ricky, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman and the son of former NFL Commissioner Burt Bell, Upton Bell, in just a moment. You are listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Manchie, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. If you're a diabetic, we have great news. You can end the painful finger sticks with a new CGM. Plus, they may be covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. If you test and inject daily, you may qualify. Call U.S. Med now to learn more. 800-437-1424. 800-437-1424. That's 800-437-1424. 
only Gentle Giants dog food Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader, and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can, too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-979-4317. 800-979-4317. That's 800-979-4317. is Sports Tours on Talk Media Network. Now, here again, Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Sports Tours. You are listening to authors Jonathan Igg, Lee Lowenfish, and Upton Bell discuss the life and times of Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey. Uh, and, and the other thing that fascinates me about the story, and I always love to talk about it, is that Robinson played first base uh, for the first year, he never played first, but they had Eddie Stanky at second. And you know, Ricky had said about Stanky, who uh, uh, that he can't run, he can't hit, he can't feel, but all he can do is win. And and so Stanky, uh, the the story which I think is is remains true, uh, may uh, that when Ben Chapman started all that stuff, uh, the racist chance at the yep. uh, early in April of '47, it was Stanky who said. Why you know? Why don't you pick on someone who can fight back? And so uh, that slowly brought brought the team team together. And then, but, it, but in '47, Rob, Rob Robinson was playing first base, which was not the, the uh, a totally new position for him. And and who who taught him in spring training how to play first base? George Sisler, who Branch Rickey had signed out of University of Michigan, where he had coached for the St. Louis Browns. Uh, 35 years earlier. So, I mean, that's what always draws me to Ricky and why I love to talk about it because, I mean, the guy played against Ty Cobb, you know, as well as doing all this. How long did it take before, and this is, you can't put a date to it exactly, but how long was it before the locker room was really together where uh, the Dodgers, just by dealing with this, a new person, something they hadn't seen before, uh, when was it, do you think, that uh, they said, like, okay, this makes a lot of sense, this works, and we're comfortable? You no, know, it's a gradual thing, but I think you can certainly see huge change um, by, you know, midsummer. You start to see that they, they you know, even the guys who aren't crazy about it, uh, realize that they're winning. And when you're winning and you get a chance at a share of a, of a, of a World Series uh, bonus, um, you know, that'll, that'll affect your ability to tolerate things that you're uncomfortable with. 
and you see Dixie Walker um, starting to give Robinson, you know, tips. Um, and you see, you see guys who had been petitioning earlier in the in the season to uh, get Robinson off the team are, are are suddenly, you know, coming around and, and at least um, keeping their mouths shut and dealing with it. And and I think that's um, that's evident, you know, even within the span of a few months. One of the things I, I'd like to interject on that and the question to everybody here is spending years of my life in locker rooms, whether it was in pro football or college game, uh, but also I went into a lot of locker rooms in baseball. The, the influence I saw in football and when I was in locker rooms in baseball was the Southern player, both in football and in baseball. And I wonder if there were less Southern players uh, that were particularly in baseball in those locker rooms would it have been as difficult for Robinson and other African-Americans who followed him? I think that's a great question, and it was a very Southern game. I mean, Phil Rizzuto told me that he was intimidated coming into the locker room at, at first because the game was so Southern, and he didn't really um, feel comfortable with all these guys. So you can imagine what it's like for you know the first African-American players. Uh, that, that's a huge factor, I think. Of course, you know, it's a very good question, and it's very hard to get a handle on it, but I was struck by something in the book of, of that Lester Rodney put together called Press Box Red. You know, he was the communist uh, at a time, you know, when, you know, Russia was on our side in World War II and, and earlier and afterwards. And, you know, Lester made an interesting comment that some of the Southern Negroes, once they uh, got to see how good Robinson was, had the experience to, uh, they knew black people in the South. They were subordinate, but they had seen him. They, were, it, 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 they accepted Rob, Robinson and then Campanella and Newcomb because, uh, you know, they, they knew him as humans. You know, a, a, some of the Northern players were, had very little experience. And, and so it, that, that's an element, too. And, and that's where, you know, leadership was really needed and, and why we, we love talking about the Dodgers because they were America's first integrated team. And I remember hearing Joe Black talk in the 80s. Now, Black came up in 52, uh, but but he, the, the stories had certainly had been passed down and he talked about they had four great leaders on the team. You know, that Pee Wee Reese, the mother hand, Campanella, the, the sort of jolly catcher, Hodges, you know, who you don't mess with, and, Ro- and Robinson. And, and so you got two and two, and, and that's what made them uh, so strong. They just had the misfortune of going up against Yankee teams that were just a little bit better. Now, you know, the American League, as you mentioned earlier, was kind of behind the times on that. The National League integrated first. What Was, was there a reason for that, and uh, you know, why did it take them so long? To me, it seems once you see Robinson out there and you realize after a season that, hey, that worked and it worked fine, let's, let's do the right thing, let's improve our teams. That's a very good question, uh, Steve. Uh, a part answer would be, you know, the Yankees dominated that league, uh, and and we've we've talked about how they didn't want anything to do with integration. So that that was one factor. You know, Vec deserves credit, you know, for for making a big hit with with the Dobie and Page Indians and Luke Easter. But you know, Vec is gone from Cleveland. You know, by the end of the forties. And, you know, the tenants in Cleveland, you know, plummets by enormous amount. So it's, uh, uh, so I think that's, that, that, that's part of it. You know, the Yankee domination and the lack of, uh, of other, uh, 
of, of other in, innovators in that league. You know, I had a wonderful experience this week. I wrote a story 13 years ago about the rise of the Culver line in the 1950s. And some kid, a high school kid in Arizona said, I, I only can find part of it online. Uh, so I sent it to him, and in this story, when, when it, Wendell Smith, played by Andre Holland in 42, writes a column in, 40, in 53 about, you know, the all-racist teams in baseball. And, and he concludes by saying the World Series would, between the, would be between the Cardinals and the Tigers, with the Cardinals winning in seven games. The Cardinals actually were the team that, uh, back in 64, kind of ended all that Yankee domination with, with a team that was very integrated, as opposed to the old Yankee team. Well, you know, that's, you know, you know one of Ricky's lines was, you know, change is good. I mean, the, uh, and, you know, Ricky, you know, while he was really, it was, the Continental League had folded by then, but, you know, Ricky had a big hand in, in building those Pirates that, uh, that won in 1960. Uh so, uh, but the, uh, well, you know, the Cardinals, I remember, you know, the Cardinals, uh, Bill White and was a, a real leader on that team. And they went, Bill White and I think Flood and others went to Gussie Bush and said, you know, we're living in segregated St. Petersburg for spring training. This is not right. And so uh, Bush wound up buying a, a motel where all the teams, the whole team could stay. So that that was an important part. I mean, and this, of course, you know, the civil rights movement is in full full fledged by then. So, um, so that's why the Cardinals, you know, were, were were so big, and they also had they had Cepeda, so they had a real mixture of uh, of, uh, of of ethnicity and and good old boys. Well, thanks, guys. Jonathan Igg, Lee Lowenfish, and Upton Bell will all be back next week to continue this discussion of one of baseball's most important moments, Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color line. Time now for a new feature on Sports and Tours. You know, we spent so much time as a society discussing controversies and disputes, we thought it would be nice to spend a minute or two highlighting some of sports' true heroes. So let's hear now from Mr. Big, who comes over from Vegas Never Sleeps, with his first profile of more than just an athlete. Time now for Sports Heroes, some a real positive look from the world of sports. We hear so much negativity, and we're really glad to have Mr. Big with us to talk about some of these. Let's start out with the world of boxing, which is sort of a, a world that a lot of controversy and negativity comes out. But we got a really great story about a boxer. Uh, tell us about it, Mr. Big. Mr. Heron, Jamal Heron was a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine, a guy who learned at an early age that he had to take the world by storm. Being a Marine, going through that basic training that Marine Corps go through, made him a man's man. He served two tours in Iraq where he suffered severe post-traumatic stress syndrome. But he used his Marine Corps training to fight that. Also, in horrible personal tragedy, he lost his daughter to SIDS. But you can't keep a Marine down. He uses his boxing career to fight those problems, overcome those obstacles that he faces. And every day out there fighting, every day out there boxing and training, he's a leader. He's leading by example. Something we all can do ourselves. What can we do to make the world better? You lead by example. You do the right thing all the time because people are watching and people do pay attention. He gets a good big chair from Mr. Big for being a Marine, doing what it takes. Go get him, Tiger. Thanks, Mr. Big. Follow us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. 
This is Stephen Manji. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-653-8302. That's 800-653-8302. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The old way of living with diabetes is a pain. You've got to remember to do your testing and always need to stick your fingers to test your blood sugar. The new way to live your life with diabetes is with a continuous glucose monitor. Apply a discrete sensor on your body and it continuously monitors your glucose levels, helping you spend more time in range and freeing you from painful finger sticks. If you are living with type 1 or type 2 diabetes and you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, you might be eligible for a CGM through your insurance benefits. U.S. Med partners with over 500 private insurance companies and Medicare. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill your insurance. Call us today for a free benefits check. 800-437-1424. 800-437-1424. That's 800-437-1424. KSHP shows are now available on all of the major podcasting platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcast, Radiohead, and more. Simply search for KSHP on any of the major platforms and you can listen to past episodes of all your favorite KSHP programs, including Sports Rock and Tours.